Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. For this episode, my guest is joining us virtually from across the country in Connecticut. Today, my guest is Christy Dranganis, the founder of Bird Mentor and an avid bird lover who enjoys sharing her love for birds with others. She has banded turns on Great Gull Island and hummingbirds at Mesa Verde National Park. Christy also presented and led field trips at a number of birding festivals. These days, you can find her sharing what she knows about birds and teaching people to connect more deeply with nature. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. So I'll start off with my first question. When did you first take an interest in birding? Well, so that question for me, if, if you're speaking specifically birding, uh, that was much later in my life, but birds in general, that that started for me around like the middle of college. I I went uh, one of my my college boyfriend said that he was going to spend a couple weeks out on some islands studying birds, and I was like, that sounds cool. <laughs> you know, it was before my summer job was going to start, and yeah. plus, like we wanted to be together, so I said, I'll go. You know, and and the only instructions we had were that, you know, just bring whatever clothes you're going to be comfortable in. But you have to make sure you bring a really big hat and then it has like sticks and stuff like that can, that can point up because basically what we were going to be doing is monitoring turns on mm. Great Gold Island, which is a small, small island off of Long Island Sound. It's about 14 miles east off of Long Island Sound. And there's thousands of turns out there. And so as you're walking around the island to monitor them and to check on their chicks and whatnot, they are not happy about that. And so they will dive bomb you and peck your head, Oh, which is why you have to wear a big hat. And what they do is if there's a t- even like the tiniest little hole in your hat, they'll go for that hole. And if it, I don't know if any of you who are listening have ever been like dive bombed by a bird before, but it feels like you just hit the corner of a cabinet. It's really painful. Mm-hmm. And so we used to do is like we would put sticks on top of the hats and then put a tennis ball on top of there so the birds wouldn't hurt themselves. And so they would dive on the tennis ball. So we were walking around like the craziest getups and like it was just it was sort of wild. But that was my first experience with birds and the first place I ever got to hold a bird. And I think really for me, it was the first time. I ever was conscious of birds existing in the world. You know, of course, Mm -hmm. like we saw them as kids, there's crows, there was gulls, there was just the kind of general birds that you see or know as a child around in New England anyway, of like turkeys and whatnot. But I didn't really care much about them when I was when I was young. And so holding that cedar waxwing was the very first time for me that that I was just really, I was like, wow, birds are amazing. This is like an elegant, gorgeous bird. And it was fantastic. There's another funny story that, um, so I went to school with a gentleman named, he goes by Benjamin now, but we all knew him as Benji. So Benji Clock, mm-hmm. who currently works for Cornell, or at least I think he might've recently stopped, but for years and years, he worked for Cornell University doing um, sound recording. Mm-hmm. And and Benji and I used to have study hall together. And just about every day in study hall, he'd like have his bird book and he'd turn it around and face it to me. And he'd say, 
Christy, all right, what's this one? And I'd be like, I don't know, Benji, it's a bird. And he'd be like, come on, I just told you yesterday. And I was like, I don't know, it's a bird. <laughs> I tell people I always kick myself because I think, gosh, like if I had just listened to Benji way back then, like I'd probably be a much better birder than I am now. You know? oh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You talked about having those memories as a kid with crows, gulls. Do you remember your earliest memory or anytime you saw a bird at that age? No, actually, I don't. I don't have any early memories of birds. The earliest one really is that cedar waxwing. That's when I was very, very aware. You know, I think I must have had some sort of consciousness of them because the one, one thing that just came to me was when I was a kid, I was probably like maybe seven, eight years old or so. Mm -hmm. And I remember myself being outside of my house, making these like God awful screeching sounds like at the top of my lungs, because I thought I could communicate with birds. And maybe, maybe that was sort of like some premonition of what was about to, to happen later in my life. But, uh, but back then I was just making these like screeching sounds and I don't, and I knew that I want, I, th I thought I could like talk to the birds that way. Yeah. So there must've been some connection I had with them when I was young, but I don't have any no strong memories stand out, honestly, which is something that I think for me, I, I haven't, we haven't talked about this yet. I thought we might get into it at some point, but just to say that I came to birding in a really roundabout way. It wasn't the typical, like I never actually even thought of myself as a classic birder until maybe like 10 years ago or so. But up until then, I had a very different approach and, and sort of introduction to the, the world of birds. So so yeah, that's just sort of like, why, like I'm not one of those kids who, you know, when I was like two years old, I knew I loved birds or anything like that. It, it came much later for me. Yeah. So you mentioned banding on the island and you talked yeah. about your friend Benji. These were two pieces that helped get you into birding. Where did that kind of go from there? Or how did it develop? Yeah. So I would say, honestly, those, those were the first, um, you know, maybe Benji's little little voice in the back of my head, but more specifically that moment with the wax wing and working with the gulls are the first thing that just keep me into that birds exist. And I remember when I went back to college that year, I all of a sudden was like, was aware of this little bird. I'll make the call right now. Maybe some of your listeners will know. Let me see if my lips will work. <laughs> he might be a little cold from this morning, but yeah, that's, that's a chickadee. And so I heard this little chickadee singing up in a tree and I remember myself just being enamored with it. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so it was singing and I would sing back and it was singing and I would sing back. And I didn't know back then what, what that was probably doing to the bird, you know, that it was like, it was probably a male and it was like, Hey, who's in my territory, you know? And I'm just, but I'm just in love. I was just really enamored with, with this beautiful little bird. And uh, yeah, so that was sort of the first time I think I really fell in love with the birds was that moment with the chickadee. Mm -hmm. And then when I left college, uh, I worked for a year or so, maybe a couple years actually, for an online store. It was like one of the very first like online computer hardware software stores. And I was just customer service. And every day I would go outside and I would just, you know, I would take my lunch outside and people were like, Christy, why do you go outside to eat your lunch? And I was like, why do you stay inside? <laughs> like, I can't, I can't imagine like sitting inside all day long. And so what I was doing during that time, during my time off, I would, I would search the like ancient internet back then yeah. for jobs with wolves. I actually was really fascinated by wolves back then. And I only had a psychology degree. I didn't have a biology degree. And so it was really hard for me to find any sort of, you know, hope 
in having a job because everyone, anyone who was hiring for anything related to wolves, you had to have a biology degree. And so I finally, after two years of searching and two years of just like going for it, I finally found um, a job with a place called the Wolf Education and Research Center out in Winchester, Idaho, which is a pop town of like, you know, I think at that time it was like 114 people or something like that, a really tiny town in the middle of Idaho. And we, they had a captive pack of 12 wolves on 20, a 20 acre enclosure, large, the largest enclosure for a captive pack of wolves at that time, anyway, in North America. Hmm. And so I got to spend almost a year with them, learning with them and, and just, yeah. And so I worked at the center. I was, um, I was a volunteer coordinator. I also was one of the educators. I would lead tours and stuff like that. And what happened was this is, this is where the story starts to get interesting. So so one thing you have to do when with the, with the pack of wolves is that you have to walk around the enclosure to make sure that there's no breaches. And you do this every day. So every day you walk around the 20-acre enclosure. And so we would kind of rotate that amongst, you know, the few of us who worked there. And we were living really rustically at that time. We lived in wall tents with just wood stoves. There really wasn't very much. And it was a pretty, yeah, just a pretty rough and tough kind of um, experience out there. And I was out there one day with the pack caretaker who had been there the longest. He really had been with the wolves since they were puppies. And what had happened was a couple nights before he had two house cats that every once in a while would like wander the the land. And one of his house cats named Jagger, he was Jagger and Rundi <laughs> for Jagger Rundi, but the Jagger, I think it was Jagger or Ru- I forget. No, actually it was, it was Rundi. Rundi was the, the gray one. Mm-hmm. So Rundi got chased up a tree in the middle of the night. And we figured out, Keith figured out that it was a mountain lion that chased the cat up the tree. And so he was telling us this story. He was like, so I want you guys to know there's a lion on site. And I was like, Oh, and I was like, why are they being so like, you know, kind of freaked out about it? I didn't understand. Cause as a girl from new England, not knowing much about wildlife at that time, I literally thought that a mountain lion and a bobcat were the same thing. I didn't think there was any difference in the two. So I was just like, what's the big deal? And so Keith realized that he's like, all right, Christy, here's the deal. Mountain lions are the size of humans and they specialize in killing their prey by silently sneaking up on them and severing their spine. And so he wanted to tell me this story. So I would realize like, you know, the intensity of the creature that was, was on site, but what he didn't realize is that it actually would, it wasn't paralyzing to me, but I was really terrified at that point. I was scared to kind of walk by myself anymore. And so we, he and I were walking the enclosure one day together. We were sitting on top of this hill overlooking the pack of, of wolves. And um, he's like, well, Christy, he said something to me that literally this, this is what changed everything for me and literally probably changed the course of my, of my life. And he said, well, Christy, you know, the birds will tell you if there's a mountain lion around, right? And like, the whole world just stopped and everything went quiet. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And three things happened for me in that moment. The first was that I thought to myself, well, duh, of course the birds are going to know if there's a cat around, right? They're going to know that they're going to like tell each other about it. That makes total sense to me. The other thing that happened to me in that moment was that I was thinking to myself, I was like, why am I, I think at that time I was like 22 or something. I was like, why am I 22 years old? And just learning about this for the first time. Like I should have been taught this when I was just a little kid, not 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, the third thing that happened was that in that moment, I made this commitment to myself. I was like, 
everybody needs to know about this. Like, I want to tell everybody about this. And it's this thing called bird language. It's um, something that Keith was learning from his mentor, a man named John Young, who some of your your listeners may know. John um, is the man who wrote a book called What the Robin Knows. And it's the whole story of bird language. And so John was mentored by a man named Tom Brown Jr., who himself was mentored by a man called Stalking Wolf. And Stalking Wolf is an Apache scout back in the day. And, um, and so there's a really long lineage of um, these teachings and the understanding of what the birds are communicating to us or just communicating in general yeah. in the landscape and that we can learn to interpret that. We can learn how to understand it, how to interpret it. And so that's really where my eyes and ears and whole body opened up to birds. And I was like, I need to know everything I can about birds. <laughs> They are going to be the thing that's going to keep me alive, you know. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a really neat way to be introduced to bird song and bird communication. And I guess thinking of it in those terms is completely different from maybe the entertainment aspect that I have, where I listen to birds outside singing and I think, oh, that's a beautiful song. But then you're in a situation where their calls are valuable to you. Very much so. And so much so that I actually can't, it's hard to get work done some days because I know that everything that they're, they're expressing is communicating something. Sometimes it's simply love. Sometimes it's, you know, get out of my territory. Sometimes it's just, Hey baby, where are you? You know, it, it could be all sorts of things, but yeah, they're now I I'm keyed into their alarm calls and even the subtle ones. Sometimes silence is an alarm, you know, and and so, you know, if I hear that or, and also alarms happen in a visual way too, you can see an alarm happening as well. So if I'm keyed in now to the point where if I'm working on my computer, I can sort of see a flash of something happen, you know, in my peripheral vision and I'll have to run outside and go check out what just happened, you know, yeah. or like, wait, who's in the yard right now? <laughs> when you talk about those visual indicators, what kind of things might you notice? Yeah. So there's different, they call them shapes of alarm. And so there's different shapes that the birds will take depending on who the predator is. So just to give you an example, one that a lot of people are probably really familiar with is what happens when there's like an owl up in the tree, right? So have you ever seen that before? Like when there's an, an owl up in a tree and, and what the birds do, like how they respond to that? I've seen it happen that? here locally uh, in my neighborhood. Yeah. It's mostly Cooper's hawks. And that I, I think I see a similar reaction when one of those arrives. What do they do? Yeah. So what do the birds do when when they? I just see them scatter. Them. So usually when I see a large flock of birds scatter, the first thing I think of, I should look for a bird of prey. And usually nice. within ten or fifteen seconds, I've spotted the Cooper's hawk. Yes. And so now that's it. That so this is where we get a little bit more advanced because what you just mentioned, the Cooper's hawk has a the birds, the songbirds have a very different reaction for a Cooper's hawk than they would for say an owl. Hmm. Because a Cooper's hawk is kind of like like to us what a sniper would be, right? So it's it's terrifying. It's absolutely deadly to small songbirds. And so they're gonna have a completely different reaction to a Cooper's versus like an owl, who likely is probably just perched during the day hanging out, just wanting to get some sleep, but the birds know it's a predator. And so they're going to mob it. And so what they mm. do, we call this the umbrella or, um, yeah, there's a couple of different names we call it, but it's just imagine like an umbrella over, over the owl. And so the birds will be mobbing it. They'll be yelling at that owl kind of in all above the owl to the owl side, rarely below it. Right. Cause that is a position of danger sure. for the, the birds. 
But that's a good way to tell that there's something like an owl, maybe even a raccoon. You think about it that way, like, all right, I see a bunch of birds. They're all yelling. They're pointing. They always point toward the predator, too. So they're pointing and pointing and pointing. Hmm. So you just look in that direction of where they're pointing, and you're going to likely see something that is up in a tree that doesn't mind sitting there for a while, right? Hmm. And so, yeah, and they call it a parabolic. That's another a name for it. It's a parabolic or like this umbrella. You kind of imagine like sure. an umbrella. And sometimes they can move. So a cat often elicits like a moving parabolic because you'll see all the birds alarming, alarming, alarming. And you know that cats like to just hang out and chill for a while, but then they'll move, right? So if you see this like parabolic that's just like on the ground, like kind of hanging and like the birds like yelling, 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 and then it moves a little bit and then they're yelling, 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 yelling. You know, so that's just an example of, of certain shapes. There's many others. There's like the quick flashes like you talk about. Yeah. We call those bird plows. Sometimes uh, humans are often humans, do like um, domestic dogs. They they cause the bird plow yeah. where um, you'll see the birds like let's say you're sitting in nature by yourself and just enjoying something. And all of a sudden, like the birds are kind of feeding on the ground and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody flies off and you're like, what the heck? Why did everyone just leave? Like what happened? And then a couple minutes down the trail, there's like a runner or a dog or someone coming yeah. and they've just moved the the birds off. So those are some of the the visual cues that that my my mind and my brain is trained to to look for now parabolic when you talk about that and you have this parabolic that not only stays there but can move with the creature do we have any idea what the goal is of that or are they trying to just alert their friends or remove this creature from the area to encourage them to leave yeah that's a great question and so the analogy i often use or the little quote i often use is that it's the famous quote that goes and you probably will know the end of it it says you want to keep your friends close but what your enemies closer your enemies closer. And so it's one of those things where, you know, let's say it is something that's very dangerous. You want it, you don't want to just run and like kind of duck and hide and be like, if you can't see me or I can't see you, you can't see me kind of thing. Yeah. You want to keep your eye on it, but you also want to annoy the heck out of it so that it gets out of your neighborhood. You want to get it out. And so again, different predators elicit different responses. Some of them like a Cooper's, it's just like, go hide. Yeah. You know, get out of sight, get out of, you know, you don't want to be seen by this, this bird. Other critters elicit a response where like, as cats are great for this, like, you know, you look at magpies out in the West, for instance, like there is this cat, a local cat in the neighborhood I was living in, and it would try to go from like the area toward my house up to where my neighbor lived. And there was a big meadow it had to go through. And every couple of days you'd see the cat like slinking through the meadow and all of a sudden the magpies would see it and they were just dive bomb it and dive bomb it. And the cat was just like belly crawling, you know, <laughs> trying to get away from the magpies. And so, yeah, the, the intention is to get the bird, to get the predator out to to pester it so much that it doesn't want to stay anymore. And and also to let it know that it's seen, you know, like we see you. It's like, again, if, if, if there was um, a human date like threat like in, in our area if there was a, a shooter or a robber or something like that and the whole neighborhood let's just say we'll take the gun away because that's sort of a different kind of a thing but let's say it was someone that had a knife and the whole neighborhood came out and was just like get away get away and like if you had like you know let's say 10 people yelling at this one individual they probably would eventually leave yeah. you know yeah because they've been they've been spotted and they're just like all right we'll try somewhere else where nobody knows on there yet you know it's not gonna work here yeah not going to work here. Yeah, exactly. Now let's move on to our bird segment where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Christy will tell us about the blue jay. Here in Arizona, I've seen the Mexican jay and we also have Stellar's jay, but we don't typically see blue jays. 
where are Blue Jays typically found? Thanks. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I just wanted to say the reason I wanted to talk about the Blue Jay is because it's a really common bird, especially in the eastern portion of the country. But like you just said, you all have the Stellar's Jay. And so there's still, I used to live out, I lived out west for about 20 years. And that was the, the Jay I got to know because that's the time in my life when I was really diving into birds and really getting to know birds. So for me, it was, I learned more about the Stellar's Jay than I did about the blue, which is the bird I grew up with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but they kind of split. Like my, my teacher, John used to always say that out West, what they did is they took the blue Jay, dipped it upside down and dipped it in some ink and then flipped it back upside down. You know? So it's really a very, very similar bird. The, the blue and the Stellar's are very similar personalities or birdnalities, mm-hmm. whatever you might want to call it. Yeah. So, so they're very similar in terms of their attitude and how they approach life. Hmm. So yeah, so if I'm talking about the Blue Jay today, you can think about the Stellars if you live out West. But the reason I wanted to talk about them was because they, they're they a very common bird. So it's a really great bird for people to start to learn, especially for people who want to start to learn bird language. It's not the very first bird I would choose for, for a bird language bird, but it's one of like the more advanced ones. It's like a, the next level up and I'll I'll share a little bit more about that in just a moment. But um, yeah, so the, the, the Blue Jay tends to live east of the, the, they do go beyond the Mississippi, but just think about it more like east of the Mississippi. There is some crossover. There's parts of Colorado that can see the, the Blue Jay occasionally. They're moving into to more of, of the west. But generally, you, you'll see the Stellar's Jay out west and, and the Blue Jay out east. Okay. Yeah. What did they typically, you said they share some behaviors and some other burdenality traits. What do they typically eat? They're omnivorous, so they'll eat whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, I, I Sometimes I feed the crows in my backyard. If I have some leftover chicken, like I, I made a chicken soup and I'm not going to finish all the chicken, I have a flock of crows that hangs out, you know, just in, they're like, I don't want to say yard crows necessarily, but they are the ones that this, I'm in their territory. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a few blue jays out here as well. And so, you know, whatever, really, it's like, it could be meat. It could be my, my neighbor, unfortunately feeds them bread, <laughs> but yeah. they love, and they'll actually, I, I, I always kind of, uh, she moved in a couple, a couple years after, after I had already been here and I had been like, you know, and I, I buy organic food and stuff like that. So my, you know, the birds out here, when I do do it, it's like, they get organic chicken, <laughs> they get like organic apples, all sorts of good food. But when she throws out her, you know, saltine crackers and her, you know, white wonder white bread, they will take that over the organic, not the meat, the meat, sometimes they will, but sometimes they'll turn their nose up to it. They really love the white bread. So um, (laughs) peanuts, that's something if people really want to attract jays to their yards, they can put out unsalted peanuts. Uh, that's really, really um, one of their favorites. And um, you can often tell if someone's feeding a jay peanuts because you'll see the jay, you know, go for it. They just kind of go back and forth and back and forth, you know, to the, to the peanuts and then they're going to stash them and the peanuts and they're going to stash them. And so it's just an easy way to tell that someone's feeding the jay something that they really like. So yeah, peanuts and then um, seed, fruit, pretty much anything. They're, they're lucky in that regard because they can, they can survive in all sorts of conditions because they are omnivorous. So when you see them going to stash it, it's likely that that's something they enjoy. Yeah. 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 Right. They want to save it for later. Exactly. Cause not many birds stash food, do they? No, I don't think, um, let's see the, the Jays for sure do, um, trying to think woodpeckers, you know, like the acorn woodpeckers, of course, I believe that some of the chickadees and nuthatches do as well. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, if there's any other ones that I'm aware of, 
I'm sure there's a couple others, but not many. Jays are Jays are really Jays all over. You know, like the the gray Jays, and I believe even the Clark's Clark's Nutcrackers. Like everyone in that the Corvid family, which is the family that the Jays, crows, magpies, ravens are in. Um, yeah, they they can all stash food. Okay. Mm-hmm. You said they're omnivorous. They're eating all these different things. It sounds like most of the things they're eating are typically found on the ground. Because are they going to be picking berries out of a tree mm-hmm. or are they more likely to just be looking on the ground for food? It's everything. It really is everything and kind of whatever's best, you know, in the season. Uh, so right now, lots of birds are going for berries as they're um, moving through with migration. So there's lots of robins moving through my area right now. And you can find them in this one part of the the marshy kind of forested area down the hill from me where I don't often see a lot of birds, but this time of year, there's lots of fruit, mm-hmm. in particular, the poison ivy berries. That's a lot of birds love the poison ivy berries, but no, jays love fruit grapes, like the wild, we have wild grapes around here and the birds love that. So yeah, the jays will go for fruit, they'll go for all sorts of stuff. So then they're pretty good at adapting to their environment wow. as far as food sources are concerned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, you talked about one of the differences between the Stellar's jay and the blue jay was the head what would you say is it a aside from the striking blue color a field mark that people could look at for the blue jay to distinguish it from other birds yeah there's a couple of things i'll say in that regard the first one well i'll, I'll stick with the, the basic one so first there are facial markings that you want to look for um, and what's lovely about the blue jay facial markings they had like these black lines and there's a white and black and but they can be used actually to identify specific individuals. So what's neat about the blue jays is those lines on their face can be slightly different from bird to bird. And so one blue jay will have like a complete line, you know, going down its face. Another blue jay will have a partial one. And so mm-hmm. if you can learn, you, you get a close up view of, of them. If you have like a flock of jays in your yard on a regular basis, take some photos of them, or even just with your binoculars, start to look for the different markings. A wonderful resource for this is Julie Zikafus. I'm not sure if you've heard of her before, but Julie is the author of a book called Saving Jemima. And uh, mm. Julie is, um, she's a rehabber, She's one of the folks who um, helped to start Birdwatcher's Digest. Um, oh. She's an author. She's one of the, the main writers for them. She's an artist. But she wrote this book, Saving Jemima, based on her rescuing of a baby blue jay. And she was able to distinguish her jay, Jemima, compared to other jays in her yards based on their facial markings. So throughout the book, she shows you all the little headshots in the sense of the different jays that would come to her yard and how she knew who was who based on their their facial markings. So that's a really wonderful marking for people to look for, especially in their day. Some birds can be hard to tell individuals apart. You can learn their different sort of quote unquote personalities if they are resident birds in your area, but that takes a little bit more time. Facial markings are great. The other marking that I often look for, for just a really quick idea of a jay, of the blue jay in particular, uh, is the white flash of the tail. So the size of the jay is a little bit bigger than a robin. So you want to think of like a robin sized bird, but you take that and then you put this like flash of white on its tail. And then the the, sort of the secondaries and um, tertials, which are the feathers that you have the primary feathers, which are the ones that people think of as like fingers, right? So they're like the first, mm-hmm. the longest um, feathers there usually. And then you go down the wing and then you have the secondaries. And then beyond that are the tertials, the ones that are closest to the body. So the, the blue jay, the tips of those are white as well. So oftentimes 
I'll just look up in the sky. And if I see this beautiful flash of white on a relatively large bird, then right away, my first guess will be blue jay. And then I'll look a little bit closer for it, see if I can see like the striking blue and maybe some other features about the bird. But the other one I'll say, and this ties into something else I want to talk about when we get into migration with the jay. And that okay. is that is what, what I think about when, when they move, when the jays are on the move, Maybe, do you want to just dive into migration? Because it's so close. Okay, so the thing I'm so excited about with the blue jays is something that I never realized. So I always thought that blue jays and stellar jays were resident birds, which to me means the birds just kind of like, you know, if you have a jay that's in your yard, that's going to be the family of jays that are going to be in your yard and they don't go too much farther. You know, they're not going to go hundreds of miles away. Yeah. Uh, but when I moved back east, what I started to recognize and started to witness, I, you know, I love going out. We call it sit spot. So I love going out, you know, just even on my back deck and then sitting for long periods of time and watching the birds. And during migration, it's excellent to do first thing in the morning or um, right around sunset. And so I would do this every morning, you know, during the springtime. And I would notice like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jays flying over my house, going east or west. So depending on the season, they go east yeah. or west. And I was like, what? Oh, there's like hundreds and hundreds of jays and like these huge groups moving. And there was one day I counted, I think a total of 700 jays had flown oh, wow. over my house in the morning. And this just stunned me. It surprised me. And I've seen it all over. So now, now I just know the jays are on the move during migration uh, I'm not 100% sure if they're just the young ones, you know, from, from mm -hmm. that year, maybe the ones that got kicked out or not. I don't really know which ones yeah. do because I know that I still have my resident Jays that live here at my house. Um, they don't they don't leave. But what's neat, now this is where the migration and the markings come into place, is that I can tell a flock of Jays from quite a distance away because what you see is this beautiful shimmering. So it's just like you see these birds off in the distance and you can tell they're a good size, like a fair, a fair, you know, size bird, but they just shimmer as the light touches them. And it's that white that's catching the light. And it's the, because they're not all white, it's not this whole shimmer, but it's just, it's almost like stars moving through the sky during the daytime. You know, the whole flock of them just kind of shimmers and right away you can tell, and they have a particular flight you know, the way they flap their wings and stuff like that, that all kind of plays a part in it. But it's this beautiful shimmer. So if you're if you're looking at jays in the spring or in the fall, especially if you're, I go to visit a friend up in Maine sometimes and he lives right next to this mountain and we'll go to the top of the mountain. That's where they like to watch. You know, they do a hawk watch up there where they get to watch lots of hawks migrating by. And he huh. and I counted numerous groups of jays and you would see them quite far away. Like you can see it's like, you know, his mountain and the white mountains are like off in the distance, but between them, yeah. you'll see the birds moving. And we got to see a number of groups of jays because that shimmer that would just fly by. And it was, it was awesome. It's so cool to watch them. What a good tip to identify them in flight. So yeah. if any of us see that shimmering in that style. Yeah, yeah. You talked a little bit about their look, their appearance, some of the field marks we can see, even we can see them in flight. One of their behaviors was the migration, how they move in massive flocks. What about their vocalization, if we can tie back to some of the other things we talked about earlier with bird language, how do they communicate? Or is there, is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. So the reason that the Jays are thought of, and I apologize, there's, um, uh, the, my neighbors are mowing their lawn right now. So hopefully it's not too distracting. But the thing that's unique about the Jays with their vocalizations, and why I think of them as a, a slightly more advanced bird to learn for bird language 
is the jays are known as tricksters. So they'll make alarms just like other birds will. But the thing with the jays and all corvids, corvids are known to be very smart birds, right? Like everyone knows about the ravens and the crows and how smart they are. The jays are in that same family and they are, I th- I don't know about equally as smart, I don't know what kind of tests we want to do on them, but, but they're very intelligent birds. And so they have the capacity to know that they can trick other birds. So what they'll do is let's say that like I have a neighbor who has a bird feeder and uh, this happened once. So I got to witness it where all of a sudden there was a whole bunch of birds feeding at the bird feeder, you know, like juncos and sparrows and whatnot and yeah. chickadees and stuff like that. And all of a sudden you could hear this keer, and all the birds flew away like on a bird alarm. Right. So all the birds flew yeah, away. Yeah. And then guess who flew into the feeder? <laughs> That blue jay. The jay. Yeah. The jay flies in and then starts eating. And I was like, cute little sneaky pants. Like that's what they're known to do. They, they will literally fly in and um, yeah. So they'll, they'll tr- they, they, they've learned to memorize the sounds of predator birds. Um, the red shouldered hawk is another common one that they they'll mimic here. Uh, mm-hmm. Red tail hawk. They love to mimic. And so they've gotten really good at, at mimicking um, certain predator birds to scare away other birds so that they can have, you know, first dibs on whatever <laughs> the good food is. So they're tricky because you can't always trust their vocalizations. Uh, mm. So that's why I think it's a bit more of an advanced bird to learn, but there, but I've learned, here's a story for you. So most people know that the spotted owl is in, I think, I think now is technically endangered. If not, it's like highly threatened uh, mm-hmm. out West. And when I was living in Washington state, I was living um, kind of not fully off the grid, but like partially off the, the grid, I guess you could say. We were still technically on the grid, but we were living in a yurt. We had, you know, no running water. It was a very rustic kind of situation. And so the cool thing of the reason why that's important is that in a yurt, um, yurts are made of canvas. They have a canvas wall. So you can really hear everything, which is so wonderful. Like everything, different kinds of rain or snow you could hear on the roof just because it's like, it's so beautiful. You just, you're so tapped in. And so every night we would hear the Stellar's Jays down the ravine making these alarm calls. And my boyfriend and I at the time, who knows about bird language as well, he's also a, a wildlife tracker. And we were like, oh, it's just the Jays. They're just, you know, making a, a fuss over there or whatever. You know, they're probably tricking somebody. And the next night, the same thing happened. Down the ravine, same time of night, around dusk, the Jays were... It was like the third or fourth night. We finally were like, I don't know. I think we should go check it out. Like, <laughs> it's pretty consistent, you know? And so he and I walked to the edge of this, uh, this not cliff, but it was it was definitely like a sharp, a steep hillside. Yeah. And, and we're looking and we're looking at the, the, you know, I always said like, you know, look at where the Jays are pointing or where the birds are alarming at. And there was a number of them sort of pointing all in the same direction. And it was because it was getting to be dusk, it was hard to see. So I, back then, the only pair of binoculars I had were these, like, they weren't night vision, but they were something I got from like Cabela's on some deal. They, they were really good at like, they're really heavy binoculars, but they were good at like low light. So I had my low light binoculars out there. And we ended up seeing a spotted owl. And so what would happen is every night at dusk, the spotted owl would come out, land in this tree. And we were missing it for four days because we had been ignoring the jay the whole time. We're just like, well, it's just the jays, like, you know, hollering at somebody or whatever, or pretending to holler at somebody. And no, it was real. So now I, I don't, I don't, I don't ignore them anymore, which can be sort of annoying because it's just like, 
all right, are you guys really yelling at something or are you just making it up? You know, come on. <laughs> I guess in that case, their alarm call wasn't that effective because the owl came back every night. Yeah, it came back. Exactly. I think you probably scared them or they scared it off like for a little while, but you're right. It came back every night. Yep. How funny. Yeah. Okay. Now let's transition to our last question about Bird Mentor. Bird Mentor is something you founded in 2012. It's a resource for live and online courses helping people worldwide build confidence learning about birds and the natural world. Can you tell us a little bit about why and how you started Bird Mentor? Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So for me, it started, I started the company for a couple different reasons. The first was that I had begun, I moved to Colorado. I forget exactly what the year, maybe it was 2012. I moved to Colorado then and Right away, I started leading bird walks for the local Durango Bird Club. They were—they actually it was just perfect timing. The guy who normally led them had to go back to work and couldn't do them anymore, and and I was sort of working for this wilderness company, and I was able—I had more flexibility in my my schedule. So mm-hmm. I started leading bird walks, and the participants would come up to me on a, on a really regular basis, and they'd be like, "Christy, how do you know what you know, and how can we learn from you?" And I was just like. I really didn't think I knew very much because I didn't think of myself as a birder because Hmm. I had the background. So one thing I I don't think I mentioned was that the John Young, who I mentioned about writing the book, he started a school called the Wilderness Awareness School. And it was a school, a nature-based school. We we taught people how to um, learn about mammal tracking, how to do survival skills, you know, like making fire out of sticks uh, and also bird language. We did some bird language classes. And so my background was a background in as a naturalist and as a wildlife tracker and a bird language teacher, but not a birder. I never, you know, I would, I would hear about what the birders would be doing, you know, and it's just sort of like, oh man, they know all these details about the birds and these things that like, I don't even know. And and they just, they look at birds in a different way than I thought I did. And so I I sort of, I didn't, I wasn't rude, of course, but I sort of would brush people off. I'd be like, oh no, I, I don't teach anything. You know, I don't really know very much. But after enough people said that to me, I started thinking like maybe, maybe the perspective that I have is unique enough and different enough that, that people are interested in learning from it because also the style of teaching that I have is a bit different. You know, most, a lot of bird walks, it's changing these days, I have to say, which is really great, but mm-hmm. sort of traditional bird walk that you would go on, you'd have the leader just say, Oh, there's a, you know, red bellied woodpecker over here and there's a chickadee over there and there's a, this over here. And, you know, and then you just have like the dutiful, you know, like folks behind you, the participants just being like, Oh wait, where? Okay. Okay. And they check the birds off their list. But for me, we would go a lot more slowly and I wouldn't always give the answers. You know, I'd be like, well, what do you see? Tell me what you see. And I would really make people look closely. And I think people enjoyed that. They really enjoyed having to work for it. Now there, there were a couple people that didn't love that, you know, and it's not that I never gave the answers. It's just, that wasn't my very first approach because for me, the, the importance was always on the education. It was always on helping people learn for themselves and not just kind of, you know, standing on my pulpit and being like, I know this bird and, whatever. Uh, so yeah. So I think that's what people appreciated about my style of teaching was, was that I helped them 
to bring out their own knowledge, right? And and they became good really fast. And that's what was awesome. Like the, initially, when you learn this way that that I was taught by John, you know, it's it's um, some people call it coyote mentoring. There's other names for it, but it's this way of of teaching people about nature where it just feels fun. It just feels like you're out for an adventure. It doesn't feel like you're actually like, quote unquote, learning anything because you don't have a curriculum. You're not like, OK, now we're going to learn about the Jays and blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, you're just out there. And you're just enjoying it and, and getting excited about it. But you're not being given the answers either right away. You know, you're being asked really good questions. Some people think of it as like the Socratic method. Right. He was always good at asking questions and the right kind of questions. And so that just makes it more fun. And I think for me, too, what's really important is that. Um, I think what happens a lot in in our world today, especially especially with the internet, we can get answers right away. And so what I find happens when you do that is it's like there's no more space for mystery anymore. You know, there's and mystery is a really beautiful thing. I think it can do wonderful things for our brain, for our spirits to, to allow the mystery to live for a little while. And there are some birds that I couldn't figure out for a couple years but I was so committed to figuring it. Like I would listen to all sorts of sounds. I would, you know, go tracking the birds down. And I, when I finally figured out who that bird was that was making a really cool call from high up in the tree, I never forgot it. You know, versus yeah. if someone just said, "Oh, Chrissy, that was a ruby crown kinglet," I might hear the name and be like, "Oh, cool." But then I would probably forget that that call and that bird were connected to each other because yeah. it just didn't sink in. You know, and so. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's so yeah, that's probably a little side tangent there, but that that was one piece for me that that inspired me to start the course and the other was that I wanted to learn more about birds. I wanted to go deeper and I so I was looking for courses. I was like are there any courses out there? And the only one I found was the one that Cornell did, which was a very very intensive course, very expensive and and so I was just like, well, I don't I don't really want to learn just the science about birds. Like I want to learn in the way that I was taught and the way that we were teaching people at the Wilderness Awareness School, which was that deep nature connection. It's not just about getting to know the names of the birds. It's about deeply connecting with the birds in your area to the point where you know the individuals. You know that, oh, yeah, that's always the same red tail that comes over and it comes at this time or this bird and, and how the cat interacts with this. You know, it's a whole system and and it just makes life so exciting and wonderful. So and there was nothing out there. So I thought, well, with my experience at the Wilderness Awareness School and the way that the model that we had developed to teach people about nature, you know, with that as my background and my love of birds, I thought, well, maybe I could put something together, you know? So that's, that's really what, what inspired me to start it. Okay. So it's, uh, from what little I know, Bird Mentor is an online platform. Based on your description, it seems like that'd be really difficult to communicate or teach in that way. Yeah. Online. Yeah, it does seem that, that work. It? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One, I do do some live classes. Occasionally, I used to do a lot more um, when I was living out west. Now that I moved out east, we were focusing much more on the online courses. So mm -hmm. the very first course I ever created was my master's course, which was an on, it was an eight month course. And I set it up so that people could use it as an independent study course. So what I do is within the course and pretty much every course I teach, 
I always have guided activities for the people to go out. So it's as if I was sitting there with them and being like, all right, so today, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go out there and you're going to sit at your sit spot and you're going to listen for this. And then when you come back, you're going to take notes on that or you're going to look up this thing. And so it's kind of like I'm sitting there with you, encouraging you along the way. And the thing that felt really important for me in all of my classes was support. And so I really wanted to make sure that there was a sense of community and a sense of support from me. And so I, it's myself and other mentors that work with my students. And so depending on the courses that people sign up for, there's different levels of support that they'll receive. Like with the master's course, people are able to, we do twice a month master sessions. So that's directly with me. I meet with all the master's students online. And then we just, you know, we jam about different bird stuff, whether it's with the course or with other things that, that we're excited about. Um, but then they also get support from the mentor so they can submit their assignments, their activities they've been working on to the mentors and the mentors were asked them good questions. They'll help guide them in even deeper, richer ways. So, yeah, I think something that, that people get from our courses are that the deep connection with nature and the really stellar support from the mentors and myself that's, and that's critical, I think, when you're learning any new skill, especially a skill like birding, because you can really be led astray so quickly. Like these days, a lot of people I know are drawn to the apps and um, there's there's some benefit for sure with the apps. But I think also the apps can lead people astray because they're not always right, you know. And yeah. so it's important to have an actual human to help guide you along the way, you know. <laughs> So it seems like these courses focus more on context and not so much on specificity of a very, like an app might focus very specifically on the sound a bird makes, the appearance of a bird. But here you're looking more at the complete context of where the bird is, how it behaves, and focusing on more details than just its appearance or sound. Yeah, that's that's a really good distinction. So what I think what sets what we do apart from what, what other work you might find out there is that we're teaching a system about how to learn about birds and not just like, all right, today we're going to do, you know, like I said, like the jays and we're going to, and this is how you can tell a jay from other birds and blah, 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 blah. But we teach you how to learn the birds. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can apply these techniques and these skills and you can figure out the birds on your own, you know? Yeah. So with the deep nature connection, it seems like while difficult, it seems that you could provide a set of guidelines and support to help people all over America or all over the world engage with the birds in their area. But when you talk about bird language, that seems more complicated. How do you cater that to people when I might have completely different birds where I live? Yeah, it's the same thing. There's sort of a set of guiding principles and uh, approaches that you can look at related to bird language, like just me mentioning the fact that there's this thing called the parabolic. Now you can go and look for that on your own and maybe you won't always get it exactly right, but the, the way you're going to be looking at the world now is going to be different. Like, so you, your eyes and your ears actually change, like how you engage with the world starts to change over time. And so you don't need someone always there. And I don't think that's that's not realistic, no matter where you are, you know, even sure. if you go on a bird walk with a leader once a month or something like that, it's still kind of the same thing. You've only got them for that short little period of time to show you what you're seeing in that moment. But when you're by yourself, you're like, well, shoot, I don't have John with me, you know, or I don't have Susie or whatever, like I need her here. And that's the great thing is like what we teach you 
is, is basically how to be independent in, in the world of birds, where you can now feel confident that you've got the skills to figure out on your own what you're looking at. And, and yeah, you, I mean, I don't always get the interpretations right. Like I make the best guess I can with the knowledge I have, uh, but sometimes I'm not right. And that's, I don't know, that's sort of the fun of it. It's just like, I don't know, what do you think it is? And so, and that's also why it's nice to have the mentoring and the the support from, that's one thing that we will talk about in the mm-hmm. master sessions anyway, is we'll get all get together and I'll ask people to share their stories. If anyone has a mystery that they're working on to share it with the group. And then we let the whole group kind of hash it out and be like, all right, well, she saw this thing in the tree and then that thing happened and then this thing. So what do you guys think? And then we all kind of get into it and, and everyone's learning as you go along, they, they, they pick up from that one person's experience, you know? And so of course, I mean, in an ideal world, we live in a village together. We'd have elders who would be our mentors. Our aunties and uncles would be our mentors. You know, we'd be with them all the time and, they'd be guiding us along, but we don't have that these days, you know, and, and that would be wonderful. I mean, that's like a wonderful vision for the world to have, to have a a time again, where we can, we can have our neighbors and our, our family members be our mentors in the natural world. And I think what's exciting is that, especially with the work that John did years ago, he, he basically, you know, helped to create lots of uh, wilderness mentors out there in the world. And so now you can go to just about any state and there's multiple nature schools there today. Whereas when I was in college, like that was it, it was John's school and maybe like the tracker school, but there really wasn't very much out there. And so um, I think it's possible. It's just going to take a little time, you know? Hmm. So you've mentioned words like masters and describing some of your courses. If I'm brand new to this, I hop on Bird Mentors website. What can I expect when taking a class or how would I distinguish between the levels or Yeah. Like that. yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people, they, they come on the site and they're thinking, oh, I can't do the master's class. I'm just a beginner. I don't know anything. I'm like, no, no, no. It's for you. It's for the beginners. Like that's why I developed the course was for beginning birders, basically beginning and intermediate. The beautiful thing about the master's course is that regardless of where you are in your journey with birds, what you learn, you can just apply that to your level of birding and then just go deeper right? And so it's geared toward the beginning birder, beginning in like intermediate birder, I'd say. And that's why it's so that the title of the course is advanced skills for beginning birders. So it's technically a master's course because it's so involved. It's an eight month course. You know, there's a lot, a lot with it. Um, But it's a real, I would call it an immersion. So it's a deep immersion into the world of birds and your own connection with the natural world. So there's that. And then the other courses, the other things that are available are the new one that I just created, which is called Identify Any Bird Anywhere. And so what I did, I actually had a friend, um, someone I was very close with, who was uh, a father. He, his daughter was like, I think she was probably like 10 at the time or so. And he was like, Christy, I really want to do your master's course, but like, I'm a working father. Like, I don't have time to do that. Don't you have like a weekend course or something that's shorter? And I was like, no, I'm not going to take my master's course and like shorten it. I just, I know it works. I know this approach, this system works the way it is. And, but the more I got thinking, I was just like, well, he's a dad. Like, I don't want to just be stubborn and be like, no, I'm not going to do it. But so that, that really did tip the scales for me. I think thinking about parents who, um, or just anyone who's, who's busy in their life and or may not know or think that they want to go that deep just yet. And so I took the bones of the master's course, like the core of what makes it up, and I applied it to this course that's uh, much shorter. So this one's just a, is it a eight day, seven or eight day course. 
Um, and, and they just have like short little activities for people to do to get you, you get the basics of the skills. So you could literally take this course and then run with it for the rest of your life if you wanted to. Um, the idea is that you'll start with this one. And then if you want to go further, then you can do the master's course after that. But I'm encouraging people now to start with this beginning course, which is identify any bird anywhere. And so they would just click on bird ID and then there's a, a free, actually there's a free workshop they can do um, as part of that. So you go onto the bird mentor website, you click on bird ID and you can just do my free workshop right away, um, which kind of gives you a sense of what you'll learn in the course. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's a good place to start. The other thing that we do for free is we have every Monday I do a bird sit. So like you were saying, like sometimes it can be hard to do interpretations of what people are seeing or hearing and how do they get connected more deeply with nature well, every Monday, myself and a woman, Molly, who is Molly Songus, she works for California Audubon. She, okay. um, she does one week and I do the other week. We kind of flip flop back and forth and we lead people in a guided meditation, but it's focused on birds and nature connection. And so it's just really short. It's a 30 minute thing. A lot of people, what they say to me at the end of it, they're just like, oh, it's such a nice way to start my week. You know, I just feel grounded. I feel connected. And then we do, we'll often stay on longer and like talk about what, what happened for people during the sit. But if people just want to come and have that experience, they can just sit there with us for like 30 minutes and then, you know, go do their thing after that. And the final course that we offer is um, it's called Learning Bird Song. And this is one of my very favorite courses to teach. So this is a course that started, yeah, it started a little, like a couple years after I started the master's course. And uh, it's a six week course because Birdsong can be really complicated to learn for a lot of people, but I have found a way to break it down so that, again, it's one of those things where I teach you the bones, I teach you how to learn birdsong so that you can then go and apply it to everything you're hearing and learning in your area. Like I've had people from Japan and Australia, Canada, like all over take what they're learning in the course and then apply it to their region and then just go from there with it. But what we do over a period of six weeks is we guide people step by step by step in a really um, intentional way. So it's myself and then two other mentors who lead the course. And we so they have independent study parts they do on their own. And then once a week, we come together with them on Sunday nights and everyone gets together and we have a, a group session together where we learn more, but then we also hear from their stories. And then the other thing we add with this course is we have a T, we have TA sessions. So we have some of our advanced mm -hmm. students who have participated in the course before that have, um, we have two TA sessions a week. So people can come and be like, I had this thing happen. And the TAs will help guide them um, throughout the week. So it's an incredibly supportive course, like over the top support with that course. And that's a six week course. And again, it's just so fun. The other instructors are amazing teachers. Um, just one's an incredible birder from, um, from New Mexico, Brian Koch. He's a great bird photographer and he's a, a professional bird guide. And then Dan Gardoki, who um, had started a school uh, called White Pine Programs. He's one of the folks that I've known him for years in the Nature Connection world. But Dan's one of the best trackers I've ever met and one of the best birders. Again, like he and I came from that same background where we weren't like traditional birders, but we both yeah. had that deep nature connection background. But he's amazing. And so the three of us lead that course. And um, that one actually is starting um, March 15th. So we're we're starting up another round of that March 15th. And I think we'll start advertising that 
um, the month beforehand. And so if people okay. want to add their name to the wait list, they can just go onto the bird mentor website and click on bird song. And then there'll, there'll be a spot where you can add your name to the wait list. If the course isn't, isn't open just yet, but there is an actual for that one. There's a specific start and end time to that. Cause we go through it all together. Whereas my other yeah. courses have like rolling admission in them. Okay. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a variety of options depending on the level of time commitment you want to make, whether yeah. it's eight days, six weeks or eight months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Before we go, if people want to learn more about Bird Mentor or just connect with you, how can they do that? So they can head over to my website, birdmentor.com. And that's where they can find out about all the courses I offer and any other ways to connect with me and the, the work that we do there. I'm also on just about every social media platform. So if you love Instagram, you can find me on Instagram. If you love Facebook, you can find me there. Uh, recently, I started a, a TikTok channel, and so I'll be posting some fun videos on there. You can also sign up for our newsletter. So twice a month, I send out an interesting bird story. I just try to keep it really simple for people. I know everyone's inboxes are overloaded these days, and so we keep it really simple. Most people respond. They're just like, thanks. This is so fun. I look forward to it because it's not like every day that they're getting something from me. Yeah. And so it's a fun story. It teach, usually teaches people something about birds and and so, yeah, they can sign up for the newsletter on the website and yeah. So then the website is a good place to go to connect to any of your social media and then also to get a hold of this newsletter. Yeah, exactly. I'm not off the top of my head. I'm like, do we have links to the social media stuff on my website? I don't know. But if you're on, if you're on any of the social media stuff, you can find me as bird mentor, bird mentor on any of them. Um, we'll, we'll get you there on the TikTok. I think it's bird mentor is one word, um, but everything right. else is bird mentor. Yeah. I do think I remember, I, I can't be quite sure when I visited your website, they had the little icons in the corner. I probably did. But I mean, I was the one who built my my website, like whenever I was, I, I taught myself how to build websites back in the day. And so yeah. it was like 10 years ago when I did it. I'm like, I don't know. Did I do that? <laughs> did I remember to put that in there? Yeah, I must have. I'm sure I did. But yeah. I think so. And I'll make sure to include that link uh, in the podcast description. So people, but it's pretty simple. Birdmentor.com. Birdmentor.com. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I'd like to thank Christy for joining us today. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you are listening to this episode from. While you're there, I would appreciate it if you left a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of some of the birds we discussed here, including the Blue Jay, please check out at Looking at Birds podcast on Instagram. And until next time, keep looking at birds. Birds.